many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever believers were added to the Lord, great numbers, both of men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of the people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Then the high priest took action. He and all who were with him, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned to the, and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain went with them and the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you are you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior that he might be, give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to those things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. And then he said to them, Fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. 
For some time ago, Judas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him came Judas, the Galilean, who rose up at the time of the census and got the people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And in that case, even you may be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him. And when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered the men not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And in every day, in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. for the world. These are these weeks where we kind of raise our brow at the end of the readings as Michelle led us last week talking about Ananias and Sapphira and their impending death. This is week five and talking about defining moments of the church and I recognize many of you who are guests today that you're not used to maybe um, what's happening right now. (laughs) So let me just explain what I'm doing. um, On occasion, we have what's called a conversational sermon. And so we will be, um, I'll be asking you a couple questions as well to kind of engage, although I, I, I recognize the time is late, so I may ask you fewer questions. Um... But we'll see. We'll see how the Spirit leads. I want to start by asking a very important question. Why aren't people my age and younger going to church? Okay, so maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But according to the Pew Forum in October 2012, they said one-third of people under 30 do not attend and are considered religiously unaffiliated. They're in the category we call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. So I want to throw out that, and Phil, if you'll pass the um, microphone around quickly, um, just conjecture or maybe something deeper. Why aren't, are many people my age and younger, maybe some of your children, attending church? <laughs> right here at Annette. Oh, sorry. We ran them off with all of our fighting. 
in the that's right. Rigidity of like, orthodoxy. and integrity they've probably seen a lot of hypocrisy and it probably just doesn't feel relevant um, a history of so many people that are different being tolerated instead of being accepted laziness is an issue. They don't stay close to where they grew up and where their family churches are. They marry people that are different from them because everybody's so mobile. I think it's a lot of those people aren't affiliated with anything. It's not just the church. It's a reluctance to feel to latch onto any type of a group that identifies them. It's our fault. Y'all have a lot of energy about this. <laughs> I think a lot of them have gotten tired of all the programs that they were had forced on them as they were growing up. Um, and that a lot of the churches now still want to cling to. There's just so many, everything has to be a program. Sometimes it's a, a, a lack of hospitality when you go into a place unlike Providence, but you feel like <laughs> you, you feel like after church is over, that's it. Where there should be more, there should be a follow-up. How to go? They walk into a church and see so much gray hair, they feel like they don't belong. Uh. <laughs> I think a lot of people grow up in a culture where if you sort of act out or express yourself or, you know, um, that's, that's not really sanctioned. And uh, therefore, um, I think a lot of people, whenever they start to feel the Holy Spirit, uh, find that is, re is sort of repressed in that culture, whereas other people grow up in a situation where, um, you know, the spirit is really moving, but the, the society, the culture says, oh, well, there's something wrong with that. And, and it leaves people in a discordant, you, you know, the, if the spirit moves, the culture moves against it. If the spirit doesn't move, things are dead. Hmm. Anybody else? Oh, JT. I go to church and I'm seven. <laughs> hey, amen. Preach. Okay, one more. I think that uh, a lot of folks 
are starting careers and they feel like they have so much responsibility during the week, they don't want any responsibility on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Oh. The feeling that you don't have to go to church to be spiritual or good. What you say? <laughs> the feeling that you don't have to go to church to be good or spiritual. Well, I do think this is, as you know, on the rise, it's not just actually in my or in younger age category demographic, but even, and this was two years ago, um, it was one-fifth of the American public was identified as in this nuns category. And, um, and that rise, that was a rise from 15% just five years before. So I I think it's interesting, and I bring this up because when I read this text that Hunter read, I can't help but feel that this is sort of manifested throughout this story. That there's projection onto the religious leaders and the religious institutions, and either from deductive experience or hearsay, I think a lot of people and friends of mine included say there's a sickness at the core if the religion's focus is only about who's in and who's out. And I see that happening in this text. At Free For All, our time gathering early in the week to talk about the scripture, Kathleen said, it's a lot like these religious, these religious leaders were maintaining their own little kingdom instead of being open to the kingdom of God. I don't know if there's anything more striking than the juxtaposition of this, the way this text opens with, I mean, the sick are coming out on, on their deathbeds and mats and Peter's shadow comes by and they're healed And then it says very quickly, all were cured. And then the high priest took action. (laughs) He and all who were with them, being filled with jealousy, indignation, arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. I mean, what a contrast, right? I mean, it's sort of like saying, so all these people who struggled with disease of many kinds, cancer patients, are now cancer-free, AIDS patients are cured. Those fighting bipolar, anxiety, schizophrenia are free. And then all of a sudden, the next line would say, and then the high priest took action. And they, these rabble-rousers were in prison for doing such things. It doesn't doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute um, on on that kind of a reading. So, So let's look at this a little deeper. This is, for those of you who've been around in this series, you know this is the second time they've been put in prison, arrested. They're unflagging and they're resolved to speak the name of Jesus. This is sort of the refrain. But this time they're mysteriously released by a messenger, an angel, and they're brought, um, well, no, and then they go into the temple court and begin to teach again. And then this interesting phrase, the temple police. Michelle and I were talking about, she's like, well, why are there police anyway? A temple police. I mean, I don't think that even actually computed before when I read this text. So temple police, or church police. You know, I think, again, there's this sense of we've got to guard the gate, and we're going to talk about that because there's some reason for that. 
In fact, I think it's important um, when we hear this not to sort of pit and say, well, you know, Peter's the good guy, and he's just he's spreading this good news, and and these Jewish leaders are the bad guy, and they are just stuck in the mud. They're short-sighted. They don't see the big picture. You know, it's really easy to sort of create these clear categories. But I want us to look um, especially at. Um, this situation where Peter comes out after, you know, uh, they're freed and, the, and the, t- the temple police and the court come out and um, basically do a little browbeating and sort of, what you know, what's going on. And, and they said, you know, we told you not to speak in Jesus' name. And they said, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And there's this great, of course, Gamaliel, or however you say his name, gave this great speech politically say, you know, as angry as I we'll give him enough rope to hang on. If if he's truly, um, if this is a God, we, there's nothing that can stop it anyway. But we've got enough history to know that these, these people rise up, they do their thing, and then these followers, they die down or they get killed. And so they, they did a little flogging, you know, kind of flex the muscle, show that who's in charge, but the public opinion poll was showing some high regard to these disciples, so they didn't want to do anything too dangerous. I think it's interesting then how this text concludes. That Peter says they, re- or the the scripture says they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And so here's my question: You have. The religious leader authority, you have Peter and these disciples. Is this, again, simply a case of good guy, bad guy? I mean, don't we need, and I'm pitting you here for conversation's sake. I mean, don't we need to guard what is good and right and true, what we believe? I mean, the keepers of orthodoxy? Don't we need gatekeepers? What teachings do we deem acceptable and those that aren't? Who do we allow to teach? Does anything go? Okay. I would say no. Don't need to guard if somebody's truly seeking God, whether their theology is messed up or not. And we all have messed up theology. That's why we come here. (laughs) So I would say there doesn't need to be an authority that lays down the hammer if we don't get it right. We just need to love each other and find out the truth together. I think there's always a process of discernment, and you know it when you see it, and you will know them by their fruits. So 
at the end of the day, it's not a problem. Yeah, actually, I like, you will know them by their fruits. So here, here is a, what I've determined as part of a discernment piece is if you notice what's happening with Peter and the disciples, people are being healed, community is coming together, and it's bringing shalom. As you reread in the last um, chapter, there was no needy person among them. To me, these are the defining pieces of discernment. Does it bring healing? Does it bring community together? Does it bring shalom? This is a good measure against and for our beliefs. I think it's very interesting. Okay, so this is the last thing that really jumps out at me in this passage is not just that their missions are quite different. In fact, in um, family systems theory, which we did a lot of study in during our clinical pastoral education and chaplaincy, it talked a lot about in a system, which a church is a system, a family is a system, this new movement was a system, in a system, it says pay attention not just to the content of a message, but to the process. That more can be uncovered by the process than by the content. So for example, a family comes in for a therapy session and they said, here's the issue. My child won't, can't keep her curfew or won't keep her curfew. Um, but interestingly, during this session, the father shuts down, the child aggressively acts out, the mother has some strange body behaviors body language. Um, and I think it's funny how the therapist is very attuned to those specific things that are happening and says, you know, this is the content. You're saying child has curfew problem. But if we look at the process of what's going on and noticing the interactions as it's being talked about, we uncover a lot more. This is just the defining issue at the moment, but it changes. And that's what systems theory says. This will come out and play out in different ways. That's just content. What we need to look at is process. And what I find fascinating about this story is the different ways in which the key characters process. Notice Peter. Peter and these apostles are persecuted and imprisoned and it's like, you can't hold a good man down. He comes out exuberant, spreading the message of Jesus, not deterred at all by the high priest's questioning. He performs signs and wonders. His shadow has medicinal effects. And even after being flogged and sent away, he says essentially what Jay says later, I count it joy to endure suffering or trials. And there's this there's this buoyancy in the movement flowing from the Holy Spirit. Now look at now the leadership. They're fearful. The text actually uses the word jealous or indignation. They're seething with rage. And here's my question. The irony of this passage should hit us right between the eyes. The ones in power, the religious, political leaders, are the ones without the upper hand. They're fearful, angry, 
And we've talked about that in previous sermons in this series, why that is. And then you have the commoner, the untrained, the apostles who've been put in prison, questioned and flogged and scolded, and they're ready for another go-round. Process that. What makes the difference? And how does that have implication for us? That's the question. the Holy Spirit was working through them for them to have that much energy, that much power, uh, that much patience. Since they were seen as unlearned men or common and other side of the common men. To me it's almost like that they they had already died. Like in a in an emotional way and not in a negative way, but in a way that was just resolved mm. to them. There were, were the religious leaders? Yeah, well, the people in prison. Oh. They, they had already kind of put aside their life. I wonder if maybe the folks who were the authority figures had spent so much of their energy trying to hold on that they squeeze the life out of their experience with God and they weren't necessarily able like Philip and the or Peter and the apostles to come at it with open hands to share what the spirit was doing they wanted to hold on so much to what they had known and what they had treasured and what had been so important to them that they couldn't see the new things that were going on I think it's like what Shirley said, it's what they were rooted in, you know, what the leadership was rooted in was different than what Peter and the apostles were rooted in, and it comes out pretty quickly when your foundation is shaky. It seems like to me that control equals power, and power equals corruption. I sort of see the religious leaders as feeling that they had to work for God and from their own perspective of what that would be, whereas Peter and the apostles were letting God work through them. When I sense fear, it's often because I don't get it. And I'm thinking, these high priests, they were following what Moses had established long, long ago. And Jesus rocked their boat and I don't think they expected him to resurrect. And so then they had this aftermath. And I think they were just extremely confused. And when you get confused, you get jealous. You All those other things creep in. And um, I'm thinking this guy, Gamaliel, spirit was moving through him because he was saying, look, we're all in the same boat together. 
let's just look back in history. So, yes, power corrupts, yes, but often when power gets its high, it gets confused and everything gets muddy. I want to say um, the key, key word you just said, which is, and we, we don't have enough time to finish all of this, so we'll, part six. <laughs> we are actually in August going to continue with Acts. Um, there's just too much here, good stuff. But I think the key defining difference was the resurrection. Over and over, they keep going back to this moment that changed. I mean, we've talked about pre-resurrection Peter, post-resurrection Peter, quite a difference. Um, There's this moment where they encounter the risen Christ and all of their expectations are shattered. Any sense of control, everything inside their box came unglued. They were undone in this holy, mysterious way. And resurrection has a funny thing does a funny thing to people. For people who have looked death straight in the face, lost loved ones, you know. When resurrection is proclaimed, something happens. You either long for it and know it to be true, or it feels scary and you want it to be true, but something internally shifts. And I want to call us in this last piece for the reflect and respond to raise the question, Jesus' resurrection brings ultimate healing and wholeness. Brings communities together and brings shalom. Yes, the Holy Spirit was there, but we have the Holy Spirit. So what is the difference? Have we had an experience with the resurrected Christ that propels us into the world? Like Peter. We chose, we chose 